Good morning. I'm Warren, he's Charlie. <laughs> uh, there's one thing I should probably clear up first because I know it's puzzling you. In the movie, he always gets the girl. <laughs> now, that's hard to figure out, isn't it? <laughs> but I've... Uh, Uh, but uh, I finally understand what the uh, what's happening. It it's something called the Anna Nicole Smith rule. <laughs> it's when choosing between two old rich guys, pick the older one. At the Now, in, in a few minutes, we're going to open this up to your questions. We have uh, a number of zones, and we'll just proceed around zone by zone. But before we do that, there are a few people I would like to thank, and then there's a couple of short announcements I'd like to make. Uh, first of all, if we can get the spotlight up there on Andy Hayward, Andy does that cartoon for us every year. He travels around, he gets the voices in there. Andy, where are you? Uh, uh, he's just terrific. He comes up with the ideas. Andy is the, runs Deke Entertainment. Deke is the one I've told you about in the past that produced Liberty's Kids, which I think is probably the best way not only for youngsters to learn American history, but for people my age as well. I mean, it's a terrific series of, of uh, young kids, uh, a couple of young ones uh, in the time of the American Revolution. And uh, I watched uh, several of those episodes and I'd forgotten a lot of American history since, since I was in uh, school. It's just a really, it's a wonderful series. Uh, appeared on PBS over time, and uh, uh, if you're looking to learn American history or have your children or grandchildren learn it, you, you couldn't do better. And, and uh, in the months ahead, he's, he's working uh, uh, on the, uh, what do we call it, the, uh, it's the Secret Millionaires Club, but it's, 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 it's going to be a program that's designed to teach young people some of the very basic lessons of, about money. Uh, how to avoid getting into trouble with it, and, uh, how to uh, how to use it effectively, and what your attitude should be toward it. So, we're looking forward to getting that out early next year. And, uh, uh, I, I'll guarantee you that it'll be a, a terrific uh, program for for uh, teaching children and your grandchildren something about the subject of money. Um, I also want to thank uh, Bob Iger. Bob is up there. Bob runs. Bob runs uh, Disney. He's doing a terrific job. And uh, I thought we could originally entice the Desperate Housewives into appearing simply by the chance to appear with Charlie. But um, after we made that appeal, we then went to Bob Iger and said, see what you can do for us, Bob. So thank you, Bob. Um, also in that section, I'd like to have a special uh, introduction for the man that first uh, uh, 
taught Charlie and me uh, something about the value of franchises and the advisability of buying great businesses instead of cheap businesses. Uh, prior to the purchase of Seize Candy in 1972, uh, I intended to look primarily at financial measures in buying businesses and uh, buying things that were cheap in relation to book value. And we always tried to get a lot of tangible assets in relation to our money. But we found out that the intangible assets, if properly nourished and if properly identified, uh, you can make a whole lot more money with than buying a lot of tangible assets. In 1972, early in 72, Charlie and I went to Seize Candy, which had been in the hands of the Seize family for, uh, for many decades. And we bought it. And of course, Charlie and I didn't know a thing about making candy. We were pretty good at eating it. Um, and we needed someone to run the place. We met a young fellow there. Uh, it was clear to both of us that, that he was the ideal person to run Seize Candy. And in just a few minutes, we, we made a deal with him that's lasted a lifetime. And if Chuck Huggins and his wife Donna would stand up, I'd Love to have you give him a real well-deserved round of applause. As you notice, my daughter, Susie, uh, produced that movie. She does every year. She works hard on it, and uh, uh, we don't pay her anything. Although she does remind me occasionally when I'm out of Borsheim's that she worked very hard on the movie. Uh, and I'll see her there on Sunday. Um, and Suze, if you would take a bow, please. And the impresario of this event, I just turn it over to her every year and forget about it. But she puts on this show, she brings all the, the exhibitors in, she uh, arranges everything, she moves into the hotel across the street a few days ahead of time or a week ahead of time and makes sure everything hums. And, I, and uh, Charlie and I just come down on the day of the meeting and take the, a bow and that's uh, Kelly much more broad. Kelly, are you here? Where's Kelly? There she is, give her a big hand. We wouldn't be having this without her. Now, I'd like to introduce our directors. We're going to have the business meeting at 3.15. We do the Q&A first, and we get to that later on. But for those of you who won't be around, and a lot of people tend to leave it at lunchtime, uh, I'd like to introduce the various directors. You've met Charlie and myself. Uh, and if you'll just stand individually, we can withhold the applause, if any, until the end. <laughs> and that way, that uh, embarrassing applause meter that we had on the Omaha Idol show will not will not uh, cause anyone distress. Uh, Howard Buffett, Howie, Malcolm Chase, Bill Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Don Keogh, Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, and Walter Scott Jr. It's a terrific group of directors. I know of, I literally know of no directors of any large publicly owned companies that have 
universally as significant a percentage of their net worth in the company uh, purchased in the open market as that group. Do you, Charlie? Anything? None. None. Okay. Well, let's, uh, that may be all you hear from him, folks, so kind of savor it a little bit. Yeah. I also would uh, particularly like to thank Jamie Lee Curtis, even though she came up with the wrong guy at the end, but uh, uh, Jamie, uh, Jamie cooperated on this. We're going to uh, have as a, as a thank you, um, Jamie is very interested in a, the Park Century School. One of her uh, sons goes to that school. It's for, it's for uh, uh, gifted but, but, but learning challenged students. They're having an auction tonight, but it will continue subsequently. Bill Gates and I have autographed a Monopoly set, and we will personally inscribe it to whoever the winner of that auction is. So if you want to go to eBay and check that out, we, we promise that we will not similarly autograph anything else. So I hope that Jamie Lee and the school have a big success on that. Uh, we have two announcements, one relatively unimportant, but nevertheless pleasant, and that is that we released our our earnings yesterday after the close. And I think uh, we can put the Having any luck on that? Did we withdraw those earnings, Mark? Oh, oh no, they, uh, they stood up another six hours of audit or so. And as you can see, we don't pay any attention to realized gains or losses. We had some gains this year. We had some some uh, losses in the first quarter of last year. So, but that's meaningless in any sh in the short term. Over time, obviously, it makes a difference. But they, they, they uh, you know, we we do not pick anything to buy or sell uh, in any given quarter, any given year, in the way of securities based on the effect it will have on our income account. For, for that period, it, it's totally immaterial. In fact, we'd rather sell things that we have a loss in just from a tax standpoint. If we have some high tax cost stocks and some low tax uh, cost stock, we'll sell the high one and record the loss because we would get a better tax result that way in the, in, for the short term. So we ignore that. But if you look at the operating earnings, you'll see that in those main divisions, that I take in the annual report. I show our four major businesses and then investment income as a side. Uh, things worked out pretty well in the first quarter for all of them. I would caution you that in our insurance underwriting, uh, our worst quarter would normally be expected to be our third quarter. You're not gonna have hurricanes in this hemisphere. Uh, in the first quarter, uh, the real exposure, the worst exposure is in the third quarter, and then there's a lesser exposure in the fourth quarter. We write a lot of catastrophe insurance business. Uh, earthquakes, as far as we know, uh, don't have any particular uh, seasonal aspect to them, but, but hurricanes definitely do. Now, the interesting thing is that under standard accounting, if we write a hurricane policy, uh, for the calendar year 2006, and we receive a million dollars of premium, 
we would earn a quarter of a million in the first quarter and a quarter of a million in the second quarter and so on. We would earn a pro rata throughout the year. And that, um, in our view, actually is not proper accounting, but it's, it's required accounting. The real exposure to loss is primarily in the third quarter. So you can't take our insurance underwriting results in any way for a rather benign quarter like the first quarter and extrapolate them uh, for the year. But nevertheless, it was a very good year, a very good quarter. GEICO uh, had excellent growth. I believe that our, I'm, well, I'm almost certain that our growth in the first quarter was better than any of our main competitors. And actually, by probably by some margin, the underwriting was very good. Our reinsurance underwriting was very good. Genry had a good quarter. Our smaller companies had a good quarter. So things generally have been working very well in all four sectors. And that's nice, but that's not terribly important. I mean, five years from now, nobody will remember whether the first quarter or the second quarter was that good at Berkshire Hathaway. But what did happen, and which we announced last night, which was very important, uh, the acquisition of a large, extremely well-managed, uh, profitable, uh, really extraordinary company called Iskar. And up until October of last year, I knew nothing of Iskar. I did not know about their extraordinary management, but I got a letter, and I got a letter from Aton Wertheimer, and maybe a page and a half, page and a quarter. And he told me something about this business. And sometimes character and talent sort of just jump off the page at me. And this was one of those letters. It came from Israel. And uh, I expressed an interest after reading this letter and in getting together with Aton and not long thereafter, I met not only Aton, but his CEO and president, a remarkable man named Jacob Harpaz, Danny Goldman, a CFO, and we met in Omaha. Uh, they subsequently met Charlie, um, and this all came to fruition. Signed a contract. Now we have, uh, well, before I go on to this, maybe, maybe Charlie would like to say a word or two about Iskarkas. He, he's hard as it is for you to believe. He is not only he's, he's as enthusiastic about this as I am. Now, have you ever seen that before? I ask you. <laughs> Charlie likes this one extraordinarily well. Charlie. Well, this is a company that, from very modest beginnings, rose to be the best company in its field in the world. It's not yet the biggest, but that leaves the them something to do. The average quality of the people in this company is not only extraordinary, it's off the chart. And the beauty of this, as you look at the two of us, is they're all young. No, this is a real quality enterprise. And these people know how to do some things that we don't know how to do, a lot. So, of course, we're enthusiastic about the company. 
You know, I'm always enthusiastic when I get to deal with some of the best people in the world. I would like, if we get the spotlight down there, that right out here in front, I would, I would like uh, individually uh, three managers to stand up, and then Aton is going to uh, uh, talk to us a bit, and then we have a. I think we've got it arranged so we can have a short movie that will tell you something about Iskar. But first of all, if Aton Wordheimer would would stand up, and we could get the spotlight on him. To, over there, okay. Uh, Aton, let me introduce the other two, and then and then can we have you uh, speak to the group? Uh, Jacob Harpaz is the president and CEO. <laughs> Take a good look at these people because they're going to make it, they're going to do very very well for you. And 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 Danny Goldman, would Danny, would you stand up? Thank you. And if you'll give the microphone to Aton, I think Aton would like to talk to the group just a bit. Good morning, everybody. It's Omaha. It's spring. The, day, the fields are green. The days get longer. And we bring a big family into a new home. I'm standing here before you representing 5,869 people not only the people, but the families, the past, and, the, and their future. It took us three years to look what to do next. We were successful. We still have a lot of mistakes ahead of us to do. And until we found one day somebody came to us and asked, have you heard about Berkshire Hathaway and Mr. Buffett? We said, yes, we heard, but we never thought about it. And when we started, started studying about the company, we understood that this is the right combination for us, a family company with a strong culture and a culture we love to keep, a young group of people that we love to work, maybe not for very long, but not less than 20, 25 years from today. And we decided, let's try it. And we had a very interesting lesson from Warren. We had a very interesting lesson from Charlie. And we survived both of them. <laughs> I'm very happy that I represent here not only the people that make the product and go to the customers. I also, in a way, represent a big family of customers that make manufacture things. They'll make cars go faster and safer. They'll make aeroplane fly. They will make the mold to make the bottles for the Coca-Cola. They'll make a washing machine. They'll make the tools to make a carpet. They'll make many things. And many times the people that manufacture are a little bit in the shade. And I'm very proud to stand as a manufacturing guy and say I'm standing for all of them, all our customers, which I must thank them every morning not only for buying, but also for trying new ideas that we bring and working very hard to stay competitive. Whoever will stay competitive will be there long term. And this is also our goal. Here is Mr. Harpaz, Jacob. In reality, my job is not to disturb. And he, in a very gentle way, fired me 10 years ago. He performed and did better things than I could do and it didn't make sense that I'll disturb him, so I went on to do other things. 
We've been in the, in the company only 34 years. And uh, the real job is done by Jacob and many, many other people. I'm sure that you have seen the film in 80 days around the world. And we prepared for you in 61 companies around the world. And I hope you enjoy it. We definitely have to fulfill a lot of expectations. We definitely have to work very hard to make everybody very proud that we join the family, also our people, and for sure, everybody in this room. So let's hope we all be successful, and let's look into the future. And I'm looking forward to come every spring to Omaha when, green, when the fields are green and the days get longer. Thank you. IMC presents Better Solutions for a Better World. In 1889, the appearance of the first automobiles brought with it the need for sophisticated solutions in metal processing. Such were the beginnings of a new company launched by engineers in the U.S., Ingersoll. In the decades to follow, another plant was set up in Germany. Since its creation, Ingersoll has established strong ties with industry, which has placed it firmly in a leadership position. For over a century, time after time, Ingersoll has proved that the best solutions begin with the best engineers. In 1999, Ingersoll joined the IMC Group and discovered that the sky is not the limit, but only the starting point. Meantime, at the turn of the 20th century, another metal processing plant was established on the other side of the world, in South Korea, Tegotech. In joining the IMC Group in 1997, Tegotech reinforced its position as the main supplier of cutting tools for industry in the Far East. Today, Tegotech has achieved unparalleled success, penetrating new markets, streamlining production process, and showing that precise global thinking can cancel distances. In the middle of the 20th century, in the north of Israel, Steph Wertheimer had predicted, from his little shack in Nahariya, the global need for more advanced metal cutting tools. The new world demands better solutions, said Wertheimer, and established Iskar. In a relatively short time, Iskar has become the second largest cutting tool manufacturer in the world, a leader in the area of metal removal. Iskar has revolutionized every aspect of machining. Its mission, to apply innovation, quality, and automation on the highest technological level. 
Among ESCAR's groundbreaking achievements are the revolution in cutoff applications, development of self-grip in the 70s, the pioneering triumphs in milling, the heli mill in the 80s, the cam drill, the revolution in drilling in the 90s, and tangential positive milling, the innovative tang mill. These innovations and more have reinforced ESCAR's position as the world's leader in development of cutting tools. The combination of Ingersoll, Tegotech, and ESCAR has given rise to the IMC Group, taking the best of all worlds and creating the world's best tools. Today's rapidly advancing world demands that we constantly elevate standards, apply ourselves more and more to provide ever smarter and precise solutions, pushes us to advance, to improve ourselves, to lead. They have to be a full line supplier. To be a global company means to be local in many countries, in many places around the world. Other IMC Group companies. E-Teddy Italy. Designers and manufacturers of PCD diamond tools for high-precision aluminum machining in the automotive and aerospace industry. UOP Italy, producers of high-quality solid carbide and high-speed steel standard tools and special tailor-made designs for applications in the aerospace and dye and mold industries. Utiltech France, expert creative solutions and extra-long gun drills for deep drilling and applications that require unique geometries. Unitech Japan, deep drilling, BTA-style tools with brazed and indexable heads. And Vertec Italy, design and manufacture of unique counter-boring tools for deep and complicated boring applications. If you look outside and you see some cars over there, be aware that in each car at least one part is manufactured by one of the IMC companies, for sure. Automotive. product line, the geography spread, the people that understand the language, you cannot start thinking, may I try or may I not try to become automotive supplier. We at IMC have made the automotive industry the foremost objective for all the factories of the group. All the Ingersoll vessels connect to contribute massively to the work of the automotive industry in North America. At the same time, on the other side of the globe, Tegotech Cutting Tools joins the momentum of the rapidly developing Japanese and Korean automotive industries. The alliance between ESCAR's developments and the IMC Group has led to comprehensive solutions which contribute to the efficiency of global automotive production and pave the way for production cost savings. We are not only selling tools, we are selling technology. We are selling the customer a better way to make profit. And we believe by giving a solution, it can increase its productivity and the bottom line from the productivity making more profit for his company. Heavy industry. Power of 
IMC comes clearly to the fore in heavy industry. The unique combination of the three main manufacturing plants creates new opportunities. The geographic location of Ingersoll and Tangotech has led the companies to develop specific heavy industry specialization. The innovative geometries developed by ESCAR, together with the design and production of tools made to conform to the special requirements of this industry, places IMC at the forefront of this important industry. Aerospace. The blend of precision and inventiveness ought to go far. If you want to reach far and high, you must be on top of the game in technology, in understanding materials, in daring. The aerospace industry demands machining solutions for exotic and difficult to process materials, proficiency in lightweight materials such as aluminum, and the ability to machine parts that require massive processing capabilities. The grouping of the three plants and the profound understanding of cutting materials and complex cutting geometries, along with the expertise in building large-sized tools, make IMC the strategic partner for the aerospace industry. General Engineering All this vast engineering experience accumulated in every field, in every industry, and in every corner of the world has paved the way for the development of new groundbreaking tools, which streamline production processes, shorten machining time, and reduce costs for every customer in the world of general engineering. After releasing the product into the market, we put another team our own team and tell them now compete against the release of the product. In exhibitions we are recognized as a very very innovative company. Many times the sentences let's go there because they must have something new. They always have something new. That's a big compliment and the innovation will make the difference. I believe that in a way industry is an art in itself. It's art, it's creation, you create something. You can see it immediately upon entering an IMC branch or factory. The house of IMC is first and foremost a home for employees and customers as one. Years of experience have taught us that this is a vital element for success. Many companies have buildings and machines and a lot of uh, real estate but it's only people that have a chance to make any difference. I believe with the ambition of the people, with the hard working of the people, we are going to reach the position of being number one. The world demands better solutions. That is why we're here. IMC. This is an important acquisition. As we paid $4 billion for 80% of the company. Uh, the family remains in partnership with us. They retain 20%. It's the first business we purchased that uh, is based outside the United States. We have others that have operations there. 
uh, I think you'll look back on this in five or ten years as being a very significant event in Berkshire's history. And um, it's interesting in this world in which uh, many businesses get auctioned off, figures get dressed up before they sell them and leveraged up and so on. We can we continue to hear from people periodically who consider their businesses too important to auction. And um, we've never really bought one at auction, have we, Charlie? Did I remember? Is the, is it? I can't remember one either. Yeah. So there's a, there's, there's a benefit in that because, in effect, the people that pass through that filter of caring enough about their business that they don't simply put it up like a piece of meat in an auction are also the people, in our view, that, that, that make the best managers and make the best partners over time. There is something going on in their brain that says this business is so important and the people that are here are so important and the customers we take care of are so important that we actually care about the home in which these businesses uh, reside. And uh, I think that filter works very much to our benefit. We've bought uh, a number of businesses in the last um, 15 or 18 months uh, where people have felt that way. And I think uh, the crowning one here is, is this car. So I, I welcome our new friends from Israel. I'm going to go over there and visit in September to see if there are any more girls out there like you and uh, see if we can drum up a little more business. And uh, with that, let's go on to the question period. And we will do this until noon, at which time we'll break for 45 minutes or so and come back. And then we'll continue until about 3 o'clock. Then we'll break for about 15 minutes, have the formal business meeting uh, from 3.15 to 3.16. And, uh, and then at 4 o'clock, Charlie and I are meeting with all of the people that came from outside of North America. This year, we had uh, about 550 requests for tickets from countries uh, outside of North America, as opposed to about 380 last year. So we're looking forward to meeting all of you that have come a long way to attend this meeting. Now, we've got a dozen zones in here, and we'll start off with zone number one. Yeah, my name is Edward Janik from Denver, Colorado. Uh, first, I want to thank Charlie and Peter Kaufman for their wonderful book. I think uh, Benjamin Franklin would be very proud. My question is, last year when asked about Social Security, you said that a country as rich as the U.S. should take care of their old people. This year, I read Pete Peterson's book, Running on Empty, and I was wondering, from the standpoint that is the greatest benefit to society, where should you draw the line on entitlement spending? And I was wondering if you gentlemen disagree on the subject at all. Now, well, you always have the question in every society, whether it's formalized or not, you have the question of how you take care of the old and the young. Uh, you know, you have people in their productive years turning out goods and services, and you have people that are too young to participate in the turning out of those goods and services, but that nevertheless need them, and you have people that are old in the same position. And starting in 1935, I believe, 
we uh, statutorily formalized that idea. We'd always felt that way about the young, that, uh, uh, that the school should be there for them and, and, uh, and uh, when they couldn't pay for them themselves and that the society owed a duty to both classes. But in 1935, we took up the idea that the government would provide this base limit. Now, I think there's some merit to the argument that the 65 became outmoded as, as uh, longevity improved, uh, and that is now being changed to some degree, and I think there's probably some more change needed. But this country has an output of almost $40,000 of GDP per person, and some people, uh, like Charlie and myself, are very lucky to be wired in a way that in a market system we get enormously wealthy, and other people are not so wired, and they come out and they, they in a market system, do not necessarily do so well, and they're fairly lucky if they provide for themselves during their working years, and they do not have the ability to earn at a rate that takes care of them in later years, and society has taken that on. Our country can easily handle uh, the Social Security uh, question. I mean, it, uh, it's, a, and it's, it's kind of astounding to me that a government that is quite happy to run a three or four hundred billion dollar deficit now worries a lot about the fact they're going to have a hundred billion dollar deficit or something in Social Security 30 years from now. I mean, the, there's a little bit of irony in that. It is, it is true that if we maintain if we maintain the present age brackets, that eventually you have uh, one person in the, in the older years for every two that are producing in the younger years. But we produce more every year as we go along. And uh, there will always be a struggle in a representative society, a democratic society, between how you divide up that pie. But we have a huge pie, we have a growing pie, and we can very easily uh, take care of people in a manner at least as well as we take care of them now uh, in the future from that growing pie without the people in their productive years uh, not ha also having a gain in their standard of living. Charlie? Yeah, I think the world of Pete Peterson, but I don't come to the same conclusion. Of course, if we didn't tinker with Social Security, it would eventually run low on funds. But if the country is going to grow at 2 or 3% per annum for decades ahead, it's child's play to take a little larger share of the pie and divert it to the people who are older. It would be crazy, I think, to think you would always freeze the share of money going to the old at exactly the same sum, no matter how rich you got. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do to pay a little more in the future to support what I regard as one of the most successful programs in the history of our country. Social Security has a low overhead and does a world of good. It's a very reasonable promise to make, and I wish my own party would wise up a little on how little an issue it is. This is... This is what happens when you ask a couple of guys our age how you feel about treating older people. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, the currently 
You know, everybody talks, likes to talk about the unified budget. They, you, didn't, you didn't hear talk about the unified budget 30 years ago on the national level, but the unified budget means that the Social Security surplus now gets counted toward reducing the overall budget. So they're very happy at present to take the, the Social Security surplus and trumpet the number that is after that. But then when they start talking about a Social Security deficit out 20 or 30 years, they, uh, they tend to get — they want to separate that off and get very panicky about it. So I, I, think, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy in the argument. Uh, let's go to number two. Good morning. My name is Phil Rafton, shareholder from Orinda, California. My question for you, how would you design a compensation system in a very cyclical industry that can swing from boom to bust? You want to tie compensation to results in some way, but this can lead to huge swings in pay, and for example, today in booming industries like energy and mining, profits are large as a result of the boom in the industry and not necessarily the results of management skill. Conversely, when the industry is down, profits are low due to no fault of management. So again, my question, how do you design a compensation package to best reward management performance? Yeah, that's a terrific question because if you're, if you're running a copper company now with copper 350 a pound, you, know, you you can coin money even if you happen to be the village idiot, you know. And and uh, similarly, when copper was at 80 or 90 cents a pound, which has been most of our adult lifetime uh, in that general, it, 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 there were fairly sparse times in, in mining much of that at the time. And that and we design compensation systems at at Berkshire. We have dozens and dozens of companies. Uh, some of them are capital intensive, some of them are, are cyclical, some of them don't require much capital, some of them are terrific businesses uh, if no one runs them, some of them are very difficult businesses uh, even if the best of management comes. And we have a, a wide variety of compensation systems. You're wise when you say how do you design one for that kind of a situation because so often people come in with sort of standardized systems or whatever the highest system they see is and then then uh, uh, apply it to their own benefit. Most people have left to select their own compensation systems will come up with the appropriate, from their standpoint, comparable arrangement. If we owned a copper mining company in its entirety, um, we would measure it probably more by costs of production than we would by whether copper was selling to for two dollars a pound or a dollar a pound. I mean, the uh, the management has control. Uh, depends on the kind of ore bodies and everything, but they, they certainly have control uh, over operating conditions. They do not have control over market prices, and we would have something I think that would not fluctuate a lot in a business like that. Uh, the the uh, bonus uh, available, but it. It would probably tie to what we thought was under the control of the individual that was managing the business. That's what we try to measure. We try to understand the industry in which they operate, and we try to understand the things that the manager can have an impact on and how well they're doing in that. We measure at GEICO, for example, we measure by two unit measures. One is growth, uh, unit growth, and one is the profitability of seasoned business. New business costs money. We want new business so we don't charge that 
against the, the manager or the 20,000 other employees who share in it. Uh, we, we, do not, we do not want to pay for anything that is not under their control. We do not want to pay for the wrong things. And I would say in a cyclical business that you, you know, if oil is $70 a barrel, uh, I don't think any particular management deserves credit for it. In fact, they all sort of deny that they've got anything to do with it uh, when they got called call before Congress. But I, I, would not, I would not give them credit for the fact that oil is $70 a barrel or $40 a barrel. I would give them credit for low finding costs for over time. I mean, what you really want to do if you have a producing oil company is you want a management that over a five or 10 year period discovers and develops oil at lower than average unit costs. And there's been a huge difference in performance in that among even the major companies. And I would pay the people that did that well, I would pay them very well because they're creating wealth for me. And I would not pay the guy a lot of money that that simply is cashing in on $70 oil and that really has got a terrible record in, in, in finding it at reasonable prices. Charlie? Yeah. It's easy to have a fair compensation system like we have at Berkshire. And a lot of other publicly traded corporations also have fair compensation systems. But I, about half of them have grossly unfair systems in which the top people get paid too much. We know how to fix Berkshire, but our ability to influence the half of American industry where the compensation systems are unfair has so far been about zero. Yeah, it, one, one thing you may find interesting, we've, we have, I don't know, 68 operating companies. We probably have, Charlie, I probably have responsibility for the compensation system of perhaps 40 managers or thereabouts because some of them have businesses grouped under them. I can't think, again, I can't think of anyone we have lost uh, over a 40-year period uh, because of differences in uh, views on compensation. I also, we've never had a compensation consultant uh, come into Berkshire. They may have had them at the subsidiaries, but they're smart enough not to tell me. Uh, they, Oh, it's never happened. I mean, we do not, and we do not have lots of meetings. We don't spend a lot of time on it. It is not rocket science. It's, it's made more complicated than it needs to be, more confusing than it needs to be, because having a system that is complicated and confusing serves the needs of some who want to get paid a whole lot more than they're, they're, than they're worth. And uh, the system won't change because it's working to the advantage of the people that, uh, have their hand on the switch, the people that pick the human relations consultants and pick the people who are on the comp committee. Uh, I was put on one comp committee and Charlie can tell you what happened. <laughs> he was there. Yeah, we were the biggest shareholder at Solomon. Two of us were on the board and Warren was on the comp committee and in that frenzy of envy which characterizes compensation and investment banking, uh, Warren remonstrated uh, softly, I thought, toward a uh, slightly more rational result and he was outvoted. Charlie used the term 
envy rather than greed, which is interesting because that's been our experience is that envy is probably a bigger motivation uh, in terms of people wanting to be in that top quartile or whatever it may be than, than, than greed. Uh, it, it's a very interesting phenomenon that, uh, that you can hand somebody a uh, $2 million bonus and they're fine until they find out that the person next to them got $2 million one and then they're, you know, they're, they're sick for the next year. Uh, Charlie has pointed out, uh, you know, of the seven deadly sins, that envy is kind of the silliest because you don't feel better. You know, I mean, if you get envious of somebody, you feel worse the whole time. Now, you know, gluttony, you know, I've had some of my best times while being gluttonous. I mean, <laughs> there's a real upside to gluttony. I, I, I don't, we won't get into lust. But <laughs> But I've heard that there are upsides to that occasionally. But envy, you know, all you do is sit around and make yourself sick and can't get to sleep. But that's, it, it's part of the human psyche and uh, you see it big time and you get this irony. The SEC wants even more transparency on pay, which I think, you know, basically is a good idea except for the fact that it becomes a shopping list for every other CEO when they see that somebody is getting their haircuts paid for by the company and they decide that they'll, they too need their haircuts paid for by the company and they suddenly become big tippers. <laughs> Let's uh, move on to number three. Greetings to all of you from the Midwest of Europe. I'm Norman Rentrop from Bonn, Germany. Thank you very much for writing your shareholder letter in such a way that we feel treated as partners. Warren, in the shareholder letter, you ended with your thoughts on managing Berkshire Hathaway in the future. May I ask you, how do you train your successors? What do you tell them? How do you summarize to them what is important to you and how if you were able to do so, how would you measure whether or not they have lived up to your expectations? Well, that's a good question. And I, um, I think actually in reading that letter, you know, that's part of, the, part of the reason it's written is to convey not only to our partners, our shareholders, but also to our managers and anybody else in the public you know, what Berkshire is all about. This meeting, you know, in, in, in terms of what we do is intended to give a personality and a character to, to Berkshire. And we don't say it's better than anybody else's necessarily, but we do think it's us. And we think we want managers to join us who believe in the sort of operation we have, a partnership with shareholders, uh, a lifetime commitment to the businesses. Uh, we want those people to join us. We want what they see after they join us to underscore the values we have. So everything we do, we hope is consistent with a, what most people would call a culture at Berkshire. So that the written word, what they see, what they hear, what they observe. And that is training in itself. It's the same sort of training you get as a child. I mean, you, you, when, you, when you are in the home, 
you know, you're learning something every day by the behavior of these terribly important people, these big people that are around you. And a home has a culture, a business has a culture, to some extent a country can have a culture. And uh, we try to do everything that's consistent with that. We try to do nothing that is inconsistent with that. And believe me, if you're a bright business Berkshire manager, and they are bright, you know, they buy into it to start with, they see that it works, you know, and it doesn't require formal lessons or mentoring or anything of the sort. I mean, if, if you talk to our Berkshire managers, you would find that they think consistently with how, in effect, Charlie and I think. There are plenty of people that don't, and they don't join us. I mean, you know, we, we, we hear all the time from people, I've got one coming in a little while, actually, that, uh, you know, nothing's going to come of it because this, this guy has, I mean, his, 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 his brain processes things different than mine does. And I'm kind of interested in learning about his business, so we'll get together. But, but uh, it, it wouldn't fit, you know, it would, it would just not, it would be a, a mismatch. And the nice thing about it is our culture is so well-defined that there aren't many mistakes in terms of people entering it or behaving in a way inconsistent with it. So I think that, I don't think there's any formal training necessary. I mentioned in the annual report the fact that if I die tonight, there are three obvious candidates to take my place. Now the board knows which one of them they would agree on to tonight. It might be different three years from now. But any of those three, uh, would not miss a beat in terms of stepping in to the culture that I hope we have here, because it's theirs too. Uh, Charlie? Well, you know, if Warren has kept the faith until he's 75 years old in maintaining a certain kind of culture and a certain way of thinking, do you really think he's going to blow the job of passing the faith on? What could be more important in terms of his duties in life? Yeah. You all have something. You all have something more important to do than worry about the fact that the candle is going to go out at Berkshire just because some people die. This is a, a place where the faith is going to go on for a long time. Of course, at headquarters, we aren't training executives. We find them, and they're not hard to find. You know, if a mountain stands up like Everest, you don't have to be a genius to recognize that it's a high mountain. <laughs> okay, number four. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Ewan Gunn, and I'm from uh, Whitehaven in England. Uh, actually, the, the last time I was uh, this nervous asking a question, I'd uh, just presented my wife with an engagement ring from Borsheims. Um, <laughs> so, well, I hope you get nervous again. <laughs> um, my uh, question for you is, um, with the enthusiasm at the moment for emerging markets, uh, many closed-end funds which contain emerging market stocks are treating at uh, significant premiums to their net asset values, even when open-ended funds um, can be used to acquire similar portfolios 
of stocks uh, for the net asset values. This doesn't seem very rational to me. Um, why, why do these premiums persist and do, do you agree that it's irrational? Yeah, I would say it would tend to be. I don't know anything about the specifics that you're referring to on emerging market funds. I haven't looked at the size of the premiums, but history would certainly show that most closed-end funds, just about all closed-end funds, eventually go to discounts. I actually worked – well, I'll skip that analogy. But the uh, overwhelmingly uh, closed-end funds have gone to discounts. Uh, you know, initially, if they're sold with a 6 percent commission, of course, the, the initial people are getting 94 cents of net asset value by paying the dollar. But um, I don't I, – if, if I saw two if – I, if I had an interest in buying into emerging markets through other people's management and I could buy a, an open-end fund at X or at asset value, and I had to pay 120 percent of X for some closed-end fund, you'd have to convince me uh, very strongly that the management of the closed-end fund was better. So I think you're, you're right. I don't, again, I don't know the size. The premium's a few percent. It doesn't really make much difference. But occasionally, Charlie and I have witnessed in the past closed-end funds that have sold even at uh, 30 or 40 percent premiums over asset value. Overseas Securities was a tiny fund that used to do that for years and baffled everybody. But um, eventually they will come back down to earth. Charlie? I've got nothing to add. He's hitting his stride now. Number five. <laughs> Warren and Charlie. I want to thank you for putting a once obscure Midwestern city on the map last year with your acquisition of Pete Legal's company, Forest River. I'm Frank Martin from Elkhart, Indiana, the RV capital of the world. I also we're glad, we're glad to, to have you here, Frank. Frank has just brought out a book, incidentally, that's a history of some of his annual letters. It's a good book, and I recommend you, you get it. Thank you, Warren. Uh, I also want to thank you for your influence uh, over Robin Williams and other Hollywood stars. Those of you who have seen the movie RV realize that Warren will go to no ends to promote the products of the companies he acquires. A few people have already noticed that, actually, Frank. <laughs> On a more serious note, there's a small but growing trend in American business governance to move from plurality voting for directors to majority voting, long the status in Great Britain. What do you see as the upside and downside of majority voting as it relates to raising the standard of ethics in the corporate boardroom? Charlie, you want to take a swing at that? I don't think it will have any effect at all on ethics in the corporate boardroom. There get to be fashions in the government's subject. Uh, I think that the troubles in American corporations are not going to be fixed by something like that. All these reforms have to be considered in the light of the kind of people that are likely to be activists. 
in, uh, in using new powers. And that crowd is a, a mixed crowd, to put it gently. Yeah, the, the question in the boardroom is to what extent, and it, it, you have to understand it's partly a business situation, it's partly a social situation. The question is to what extent do the people that are participating there think like owners and, and whether they know enough about business so that even if they're trying to think like owners, that their decisions will be any good. And Charlie and I have been on boards of companies with dual voting. Berkshire has that, although it's so minor that it doesn't really make any difference. But we've been on other boards, and I have never really seen any difference in behavior based on, on the nature of the votes that got them into the boardroom. But there's an enormous difference. Uh, I think you'd be blown away if, if you watched boardrooms over the years. There's just an enormous difference in terms of uh, really the business savvy of the people in the room, the degree to which they are thinking like owners as they go along. Um, and uh, I, I, I've seen no, uh, I don't know the dual voting or the lack of dual voting really is going to have very much to do with that. The, the key, I've, I've mentioned it in the past, there's all these fashions, as Charlie says, in corporate governance, but the job of the board is to get the right CEO to prevent that CEO from overreaching, because sometimes you have some people that are very able, but they still want to take it all for themselves. But if they take nothing and they're the wrong CEO, there's, there's, there's still a disaster. So low pay itself is not the criteria. But you want the right CEO, you do not want them overreaching. And then I think the board needs to exercise independent judgment on important acquisitions, because I think CEOs, even smart CEOs, are motivated uh, frequently in acquisitions by other than rational reasons. And in those three areas, uh, you know, American directors have, I don't think they've given a tremendous account of themselves in, in recent years, whether at dual system places or otherwise. The only cure to better corporate governance, in my view, is that if the very large shareholders start really zeroing in on whether those questions I just mentioned are being addressed properly. If they go on all these peripheral issues, you know, they have a lot of fun and they get in the papers, you know, they have little checklists and they can issue grades and all that. It isn't going to do anything in terms of making American business working better. But if the eight or ten largest shareholder groups, if the really large institutional investors say, you know, this compensation plan doesn't make any sense and we're not voting for the directors and here's why we're not voting for the directors, you'd get change, but so far they've been unwilling to do that. It takes the big shareholders. It's not going to be done by any coalition of small shareholders or people sticking things on ballots, but the big shareholders of this country, you know, basically they've, some of them have farmed out their voting even. Uh, I, I was amazed to find that out, that a number of very large institutional investors have actually just turned their voting process over to somebody else. They don't want to think like owners. And, uh, you know, they pair, we, we all bear the, the penalty for that. Number six. Hello, my name is Andy Pollan from Adrian, Mich Michigan. Thank you once again for having me to Omaha. My question is for Warren, but Charlie, please add your thoughts as well. 
Warren, I've heard you say many times that you don't understand the technology and that you rely on Bill for that, and that's fine. And I see from the, this, this year's movie that you're learning, so that's good. Slowly. Uh, I'm also curious to hear what you've learned so far about the other informa information technology companies such as IBM, Sun Microsystems, Oracle, Dell, EMC, and Intel. I know. I, what I've learned is I know enough not to know that I don't know enough to make an investment decision. The Charlie and I have circles of competence that extend to evaluating a number of, of types of businesses, and there are a whole lot of businesses that we won't be able to evaluate. Uh, some of them I don't think, I, I think very few people can evaluate. I mean, you get outside of uh, you just get into businesses that, where the future is so likely to be different than the present uh, that maybe there's a few people who have great insights on it, but we sure don't. We are best at the businesses where we can come to a judgment that they're going to look a good bit like they do now, five years from now, ten years from now. They'll be bigger, they'll be doing different things, but the fundamentals will be the same. This car will be a bigger company five years from now, maybe a much bigger company, and we may get a chance to do interesting acquisitions. But what you saw there, the fundamentals won't change. The way that people think won't change. Uh, I can name a number of businesses that are bound to change dramatically. I mean, when you think of how much the telecom business, for example, has changed over the last 15 or 20 years, it's, it's, it's startling. Even with hindsight, you know, it's a little hard to figure out, you know, who was going to make all the money and so on. It, it, there's, just, there's just games that are too tough. Charlie says, you know, we've, we've got three boxes at the company, in, out, and too hard. And a, a lot of things end up in the too hard pile, and, and it doesn't bother us. You know, we don't have to be able to do everything well. If you go to the Olympics, you know, if you can run the 100 meter well, you don't have to throw the shot put. You know, some other guy can throw the shot put, and you'll still get a gold ribbon, you know, if you run the 100 meter fast enough. So. We, we try to stay within the circle of competence. Tom Watson Sr., I think it was Sr., yeah, Tom Watson Sr., many years ago said, <clears throat> I'm no genius, but I'm smart in spots and I stay around those spots. Well, that was pretty damn smart, you know, and, and uh, we have found a lot of our managers who don't think, you know, they can solve every problem in the world, but they run their businesses extraordinarily well. Uh, I mean, you do not want to, Frank Martin mentioned uh, Forest River, you do not want to go and compete with Pete Legal in, in his business. He's going to kill you, you know, and uh, he's very, very, very good. But he doesn't come around and try and tell us how to run the insurance business because that's, that's not his game. We, we look for people that are very good at, at things they understand, and, and, and we don't get any inferiority complex at all about the fact that, uh, well, I, I the, you mentioned Intel, I believe. I was virtually there at the birth of Intel because I was on the board of Grinnell and Bob Noyce was the chairman of the board of Grinnell. And we bought, at Grinnell, we bought $300,000 worth of their original debentures. And, uh, you know, I knew Bob. Uh, I thought he was a very, very smart guy. But I wouldn't have had the faintest idea how to evaluate the future of Intel then. And I really don't have it now, you know. and. I think they probably had a few surprises themselves in the last 
few years with, with AMD and what's been happening in their business, but what that's going to look like in five years, I don't have any idea. And I'm not so sure if you were in the industry, you'd know exactly what it was going to look like in five years. And some businesses just are very, very hard to predict. Charlie? Yeah, one of the foreign correspondents last year, after looking at us carefully, said, in effect, you guys don't seem smart enough to do so much better than other people as you're doing. Was he looking at me or you, Charlie? Both. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got an explanation? And we said, we know the edge of our competency better than most people do. It's a very useful thing to know the edge of your competency. And I always say, it's not a competency if you don't know the edge of it. I'll have to think about that a little bit. (laughs) Bill will explain it to me later. Uh, Area seven, please. I am John Bailey from Boston, Massachusetts. I wanted to ask uh, Warren and Charlie if you could consider three hypothetical securities for a long-term investment. Uh, The first would be like a share in median family income for the United States. Uh, The background there that on uh, in real terms, median family income has been stagnant for approximately 30 years. Uh, The second security would be a share in all corporate income in the United States. Uh, The background there that corporate income has been taking an ever larger slice of GDP for several years. And finally, a bit more abstract, a share in all capital assets in the United States. And I would like to include all intangible capital assets, if possible. So would any of these be of interest for a long-term holding, perhaps 20 years or so? And if not, why not? Well, I think I'd rather buy Escar. (laughs) (laughs) The uh, corporate profits, as you point out, have been close to their highs, except for a very few years post-World War II, and uh, as a percentage of GDP, it's, 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 it's hard to imagine being much larger. It's interesting, while corporate profits is reported, you take the S&P, it's percentage of book, percentage of sales, go down the line, they're all on the high end. Corporate income taxes really are not that high relative to the total revenues of the country, so you can see that there's been a little disconnect there in, in some manner. but. Median family income is something that Charlie and I have never even considered. Uh, <laughs> we, we, are not, uh, we are not shooting for that. Uh, it, it is certainly true that in the last uh, five to ten years that the, the, the disparity in, in income uh, has widened significantly and that the the tax breaks for the wealthy have have been uh, extraordinary. Um, I've pointed out in the past that 
most of the members of the Forbes 400, myself included, pay a lower percentage of their income to the U.S. government counting Social Security taxes than does the receptionist that works in their office. That was not true 30 years ago, and I don't think it's something that should be true in a rich society, uh, but it has happened. Uh, and I just computed my 2005 return in 2004, and I have no tax shelters. I don't have a, I don't have a tax advisor. I just do things, and at the end of the year, I add it all up. In 2004, my rate was the lowest of the 15 or 16 people in the office. And in 2005, my rate was even lower. And that's courtesy of the U.S. government. That's not courtesy of a lot of tax write-offs or anything of the sort. And I think that's, I think it's crazy. And I don't think the American people understand it very well. Uh, and I think that uh, if they did understand it, they, they should and would be quite unhappy about it. So I think that, I think that the lower incomes, median and the median, people making medium amounts of income have not shared in the prosperity of the last uh, decade or so in a way that's all proportional to the way the, uh, the wealthy have, have, have participated in it. Uh, the, uh, the last point you mentioned a little too esoteric for me, so I'll pass it over to Charlie. Well, yeah, I, but I think the main figure that matters to all of us, including the people at the median, is uh, how does GDP per capita grow, and those figures have been very good. And so uh, I wouldn't get too wild on the subject of the median income. It isn't like we're all permanently in some status with nobody moving from status A to status B. There's a huge flux both up and down and what's really important is that the pie keep growing at a, at a decent clip. All that said, I think that Warren's right that some of those tax changes, tax changes were a little crazy. I mean, they caused more envy than we needed, but I don't, I don't think it's all that important. Yeah, we might think it was more important if we were working at the median income, Charlie. <laughs> Let's go to number eight. Uh, good, good morning. I'm Diane Ryan from Kansas City. My question is, what is your opinion on the economics of ethanol and as just as a fuel additive and as a potential investor, should I be looking at that industry? Well, I don't know enough uh, to answer the latter part, I know we don't, Charlie and I would not know enough to evaluate ethanol projects. We've been approached on them, and of course they're quite popular now, but in terms of figuring out what an ethanol plant is going to be earning on capital five or ten years from now, it's far easier for us to figure out whether people are going to be drinking Coca-Cola or even eating C's candy, which I highly recommend. Uh, so it. You know, it will depend on government policy. It will, it will depend on a lot of variables. 
that we're not particularly good at predicting. It's easy to raise money for it now. I mean, it's a popular item. You know, it's 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 hot. And our general experience is that we don't we don't look at things very much that are hot at any given time. Uh, uh, I know. I know, I, I know nothing about the, you know, the biochemistry or anything of the sort. Uh, I have a son who was a, uh, head of the ethanol board in, in, in Nebraska, and if I notice that he suddenly starts getting richer than I am, you know, I will suspect that I should start looking at ethanol very hard. But so far, I haven't seen tangible evidence of that. And, uh, there's no question ethanol usage is going to grow. I mean, that 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 we will see. Generally speaking. Ag processing, agricultural processing business have not earned high returns on capital. I mean, if you look at if you look at Cargill, you look at ADM, you look at the big the big processors, that has not been a a great business. You know, and, and uh, ethanol could prove an exception, but I'm not sure how you gain a significant competitive advantage over time. You know, with any given ethanol plant, uh, and if you get too many of them around. You know, it will not be a good thing when you're turning out a commodity. Charlie? Well, my attitude is even more hostile than Warren's. I have just enough glimmers of thermodynamics left in me to suspect that when you, that it takes more fossil fuel energy to create ethanol than you can get out of the ethanol you've created. If so, that's a very stupid way to try and solve an energy problem. Well, considering my family situation, I would say I have friends who like ethanol and I have friends who don't like ethanol. And I want my position to be perfectly clear. I'm for my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to number nine. Hello, my name is Johann Freudenberg from Hanover, Germany. Do you think we are in a commodity bubble? Thank you. Well, certainly, not in, in, in agricultural com commodities, they haven't, they haven't done anything, if you're talking about wheat or corn or soybeans or something. But if you get into the metals, oil, um, you know, there's been a terrific move. Uh, the most extreme probably has been copper, isn't I would say that well, um, oil, if you go back a few years to when it was $10 a barrel, it's been more extreme than copper. But you are undoubtedly, it's like, it's like most, it's like most uh, trends. At the beginning, it's driven by fundamentals. And at some point, speculation takes over. The very fact that pe the fundamentals cause something that people looked at for years uh, without getting excited about fundamentals change the picture in some way. <clears throat> Copper does get a little short, you know, or, or people get a little worried about currency and maybe gold goes up or whatever it may be. Uh, but, you know, it's that old story of what, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. And with any asset class that has a big move that's based initially on fundamentals, is going to <clears throat> attract speculative <clears throat> speculative uh, participation at some point, and that speculative participation can become dominant as time goes by. And, and uh, you know, famous case always being tulip bulbs. I mean, 
Tulips may have been more attractive than dandelions or something, so people paid a little more money for them. But once, once a price history develops that causes people to start looking at an asset that they never looked at before and to get envious of the fact that they're because he saw this early and so on, that takes over. And uh, my guess is that uh, we're seeing some of that in the commodity area. And of course, I think we've seen some of it in the housing area too. How far it goes, you never know. I mean, it just, some things go on to just unbelievable heights. Uh, and then, you know, silver went back in there. That was manipulation to some extent, but it got up to $50 an ounce very briefly back in the early 80s. Uh, but the eyes of the world that never looked at silver when it was $1.60 or $1.30 back in the 60s, you know, everybody in the world was looking at it and some were shorting and some were buying, but it becomes a speculative football. And my guess is that an awful lot of the activity in something like copper now is is speculative on both sides of the market. Uh, if uh, and it, you know, if it goes to five dollars a pound, who knows? But it, you are looking at a a market that is is responding more to speculative forces now than to fundamental forces, in my view. Charlie. Well, I think we've demonstrated how little we know about commodity prices by our very skillful operations in silver. I, I think you, you can change that from R to it's mine. Actually, I, 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 I bought it very early. I sold it very early. Uh, other than that, everything I did was perfect. I mean, <laughs> we managed to minimize things there with great efficiency, <laughs> or I managed to. Charlie didn't have anything to do with that. I was the silver king there for a while. We 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 did make a few dollars on it, but. Uh, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not good at the game of, when it gets into the speculative area, figuring out how far a speculative boom will go. And, um, it, we, if the fundamentals are attractive, we think we're getting a lot for our money, buying equities or whatever it may be, uh, we'll make some money. We, we, will pro we may not make as much money, remotely as much money, as, as, as somebody who is, uh, you know, plays out the last 30 days or 30 weeks of a of a real wild orgy. I mean, these things, they tend to be the wildest toward the end. But that gets back to the question, you know, of Cinderella at the ball. I mean, you, you know, you, you're there, you're having a wonderful time, the punch bowl is flowing, and the, the dance partners are getting prettier all the time, and you know at midnight it, it's going to turn to pumpkins and mice. And, you know, you look around the room, and you think just one more dance, one more good-looking guy, you know, one more glass of champagne, and you think you're going to get out of there at midnight. And of course, everybody else thinks they're going to get out of there at midnight too. And in the end, it does turn to pumpkins and mice. And in this game, as I've said, you know, Adam Smith said it many years ago. A fellow named Jerry Goodman wrote under the pseudonym of Adam Smith. Says the problem with that particular dance for Cinderella is that there are no clocks on the wall. You know, and and in the in in the in the markets. If you're talking copper now, if you're talking internet stocks in 1999, if you're talking uranium stocks in the 1950s, there are no clocks on the wall. And the party does get to be more fun, you know, minute after minute, hour after hour, and then it does turn to pumpkins and mice. Number 10. My name is Luisa Loureiro. I'm a student at the University of Kansas, and I'm originally from Brasilia, Brazil. 
My question is for both, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Monger. The stock market in South America has been growing quickly in the last few years. What do you think about investment opportunities in South America, given the political environment and underlying risks? Yeah, we would. Our problem in many markets is that we have to put a lot of money to work to move the needle at Berkshire. We've got a market value of 135 billion or something like that. So we are looking to put out hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars at a minimum when we look at marketable securities. And that, that really uh, narrows the field in terms of countries or in terms of businesses within those countries. But you know, we made an investment about three years ago in PetroChina. Now, PetroChina is one, probably one of the, well, it is one of the five largest oil companies in the world. And yet we were only able to even there to get 400 and some million dollars into it, which fortunately is worth a couple of billion now. But here is a country the size of China, the largest company uh, in that country. And even there, we only got 400 and some million dollars in, although we would have liked to have gotten more. But we weren't afraid to go wanted to get paid more uh, for going into China, and we did, uh, because we don't know the game as well there. Uh, we would feel the same way in Brazil. I mean, we uh, a great beer company down there that a, a friend of mine uh, ran, and you know, we should have been in that. Uh, uh, we knew he was a great manager, and, and, and he was going to do a great job with it. So Brazil would not be off limits at all, but we'd have to be able to get a lot of money into a business we understood at an attractive price. We would want it to be cheaper than if it were in the United States. We wouldn't understand the tax laws as well, the nuances of governance, a whole bunch of things. But after allowing for that uh, at a price, we would do it. We're unlikely to put a lot of money into, uh, Brazil's a big country, but we're unlikely to put a lot of money into really small economies because we can't get enough money into them. Charlie? No more. Number 11. My name is Jeff Bingham. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I have a question regarding the manufactured housing industry. Uh, what is your outlook on demand uh, for the industry? And correspondingly, uh, in your opinion, will lending increase in a meaningful way over the next few years? And are the homes priced uh, attractively? Uh, relative to uh, competitive products like stick-built housing uh, and apartments in the face of uh, continued site rent increases at the community level and uh, in some cases re uh, lenders requiring shorter maturities on mortgages. It's been kind of an interesting history on manufactured housing. If you go back, you have to go back 30 or 40 years, 40 years I think almost, to have find volume as low as it's been in the last couple of years. Uh, and the houses are better than, by far better than they were then. There have been years when 20% of the housing, the new housing product in the United States was manufactured housing, one out of every five. Last year, leaving out FEMA demand, you know, we were bumping along for the third year, I believe, just a t tiny bit over the 130,000 level you know, which is like six or seven percent, probably seven percent of, of, of new housing starts. So the percentage of the total new housing stock that has been manufactured housing in recent years has really been very low, while the houses are better, considerably better quality uh, than in 
uh, the, the earlier years. Uh, you can look at the house. We've got two houses out there on the exhibition floor, around $45 a square foot. You know, that, that's good value. There's a lot of resistance <clears throat> through local zoning laws and that sort of thing by the local builders to uh, the influx of manufactured housing. <clears throat> We've made progress on that in some areas. We're actually developing subdivisions uh, in that business. The houses were missold four or five years ago in huge quantity because you had manufactured housing retailers selling the properties, <clears throat> getting any kind of a down payment, taking the loans, selling to people that we shouldn't be buying them, taking the loans, securitizing them, so somebody in some insurance company someplace or lost significant sums of money. So you had really an abuse of credit <clears throat> in the field, and there's a hangover from that. And it's taken a long time for that hangover to work its way through. Um, I think Clayton Homes, which we own, has done a terrific job in both the financing. They should be financed on shorter terms, incidentally. I'm, I'm, if you put them on owned land, that's one thing. But if, uh, but financing them for 30 years, in my view, was a mistake. <clears throat> but the terms got very lax for a while, and uh, you know we're bearing the, the the consequences of that now. But I think the market will get bigger. But I do not think it will get bigger this year. I, I see a year that, counting some FEMA demand and uh, and some hurricane-induced demand. And, maybe 150,000 units, 145,000 units. And by industry standards, that's, that's down a lot. Now, the number of plants is down a lot, and the number of retailers are down a lot. Clayton's position is, is very strong, and their, their record is so much better than anybody in the industry that, that you have to look very hard to find number two. Charlie? Yeah, you asked about stick-built housing and how competitive it was. That's been one of the troubles of the manufactured housing game. Stick-built housing has gotten so efficient, but there the system is aided greatly by Berkshire's subsidiary, MyTech. So, uh, and stick-built housing is, is amazingly efficient when it's done in big quantity with systems like MyTech provides. And if it weren't for that, there'd be a lot more manufactured housing. Personally, I think manufactured housing is going to get a lot better and take a lot more of the market. It may take a considerable period, but that is so logical that I think it will eventually happen. Yeah, somewhere down the road, you would expect 200,000-plus units for the industry, but, but I don't think you'll see it in the next, next year or two. It, uh, the industry has to think through, and they have, they've made a lot of progress on this, but they have to think through what's the logical way of financing these things, and what's the way to make sure that the person who buys it you know, really has an asset that's in excess of their of, of loan value five and ten years down the road. And, no, and really very little consideration was given to that uh, five years ago. It was just a question to put together the paper, sell it in Wall Street, and let somebody else worry about it later on. Clayton did a way better job than other companies in that respect, but those were the industry conditions uh, uh, that existed then. I think, but I think Clayton will be, Clayton could easily be the largest home builder uh, 
in the United States in, 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 in future years because that we will be a big part of an industry that, as Charlie says, should be doing more volume. I also think that some of the sin that was in the manufactured housing finance a few years ago has shifted into the finance of the stick-built houses. There is a lot of ridiculous credit being extended in America in the housing field. And uh, it had a horrible aftermath in the manufactured housing sector. And my guess is there'll be some trouble in the stick-built sector in due course. Well, dumb, lend dumb lending always has its consequences, and usually on a big scale because you don't see it for quite a while. So therefore, it's, it's like a disease that doesn't manifest itself for, you know, a few weeks. And, and uh, you can have an epidemic of something like that, and, and what, by the time you know you have an epidemic, you're, you're very well into it. Well, that's what happens in, in dumb financing, and, and you had that. You periodically get it, but you certainly had it in commercial financing in the 80s, and you had the RTC and the savings and loan crisis and all of that because literally one dumb project was put up after another. A, a developer will develop anything he can borrow the money against. You know, I mean, that, it's, it's that simple. And, and when the, when the inst lending institutions pour the money out for something, it will get built. And that happened in manufacturing housing. It happened in commercial real estate in the 80s. I think it's happened in, in uh, conventional housing here in recent years. And if you look at the 10 Qs that are getting filed for the first quarter of some lending institutions and, and, and the 10 Ks that were last year, and you look at the, the balances increasing on loans for interest that's accrued but was not paid because people had adjustable mortgages, but they're only adjustable so far, but the lending institutions are taking in the income as if, the, as if it were paid. Uh, you'll see some very interesting statistics. Yes, and some of this dumb lending is being facilitated by contemptible accounting. The accounting profession has not stopped compromising its way into terrible behavior. Our auditing bill just went up. Number 12. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Elliot Samuels. I'm from New York City. Thanks to high energy prices, other factors, Russia has been one of the best performing markets recently. The country's financial condition has stabilized since the 1990s. A fledgling middle class is taking shape as personal incomes grow. And there are also risks, political, legal, uh, risk to minority investors. But there are also potentially great values among second tier companies there. I was wondering what needs to happen in Russia for you to invest there, whether for Berkshire or for yourself, and uh, what kind of companies would interest you there? Yeah, it sounds like you may own a few Russian stocks yourself. <laughs> the, uh, I would, uh, in night, as you know, in 1998, uh, Walter Rissen said, don't default in 1998. Uh, in Russia, at least, he was proven wrong. And Charlie and I were inherited the business at Solomon that was uh, in the oil business, big time out in the uh, in Siberia. And there came a time when we got to dig the holes. You know, we sent the money in, and as long as we were drilling, uh, we were welcome. And then we wanted to start taking the oil out. 
uh, after our money had been used to drill the holes, they weren't quite as friendly. Um, in fact, it was rather, really kind of extreme what uh, took place with us. So having had a few experiences like that, it, would, it might take us quite a while before we wanted to sink a lot of money into, into Russia. It, it, it may be different now, but uh, uh, I don't think it's any certainty. I, I, I had uh, breakfast in Sun Valley three years ago this July, I believe it was, with Kordakovsky, and we had a translator there. And he talked to me about whether he was thinking about listing Yukos on the New York Stock Exchange, but he said, you know, it would require registering with the SEC or something, and he wasn't sure whether that would that was be too dangerous. Well, I don't think he listed there, but he went back to Russia, and he's been in jail now for, uh, well, just about ever since. And Yukos was put into bankruptcy uh, with tax claims, and, you know, it. I don't, uh, I just think it's a little hard to develop a lot of confidence that the world has changed uh, permanently there in terms of its attitude toward capital and particularly toward outside capital. Uh, Charlie, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the situation reminds me a little of Pauli Petroleum, which years ago was much traded in Los Angeles. And the saying always was, if they ever do find any oil, that old man will steal it. And I'm afraid we have some of that problem in many of the co countries in which we're seeking for oil. Didn't we really have the livelihood of our guys threatened over there, Charlie? When they, I think we sent in some people to get out the equipment, and they said if they sent in the people to get out the equipment, not only would the equipment not get out, but the people wouldn't get out. And it, um, so we understood the situation. <laughs> that was not that long ago. Uh, number one again. I'm Lori Gould from San Francisco, California. My question is, what are your thoughts about the residential real estate market in the U.S., where it's headed, and how is California different, if so? Well, Charlie's our California expert. We, we've managed one time to develop a great piece of property and. California, and we spent about 20 years or so developing in Charlie? Or? Yes, and we got our money back with interest. Barely. Barely, okay. yeah. yeah. We, we finished it at just the wrong time. We, we uh, the land value that we nurtured, it was a terrific piece of land. Charlie lives there. Uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we spent 20 years no. working on developing the land. And the land value, which in effect we cashed out for what five or six million dollars, now would have a the implicit land value would be what maybe a hundred million dollars. Yeah, but we finished it at the wrong time. So, uh, you know, it's a wonderful the climate is wonderful. Everything's wonderful about this property. It's just that that from time to time, even in great localities, you've seen it happen in New York a couple of times. You know, in the last thirty years, where the, the swing in properties values has just been huge. And what we see in our residential brokerage business, and we're in, I don't know how many different states, 
Because we see a slowdown every place. Now, we see it most dramatically in some of the, what have been the hottest markets. And the markets where you're going to, in my view, you're likely to see the greatest fall off and where you've had the biggest bubble are the ones uh, tend to be the high-end market and they tend to be ones where people have bought for investment or speculation uh, rather than use. $100,000 for a house and mortgage it for 270000 and if the value goes to two hundred fifty, if they have a job and everything, they, they won't move out. I mean, it, it, the you don't lose a lot of money even though the market value on a given day is less than the loan value when families stay together and employment uh, is present and all that. But, but when you have in investment type holdings or speculation type holdings, when you in effect have had the day traders, you know, of the internet move into the day trading of, of condos, uh, then you, the, then you get, then you get transact, then, then you get a market that can move in a big way. First, it sort of stops and then it kind of reopens. Real estate is different than, than stocks. If you own 100 shares of General Motors, it's going to trade on Monday, and, and that's what it's worth, and you can't kid yourself about it. But if you own real estate, you know, there's a great tendency to think about the one that sold down the street a few months ago, and there's a great tendency to think, you know, you only need one buyer uh, who hasn't gotten the word that things have slowed down, and, and, and you'll make your sale. I can tell you that in in Dade and Broward County, for example, in Florida, um, where the average condo is about 500,000. If you go back to December of 2004, there were less than 9,000 condos listed for sale, and I think 2,900 of them sold in the month. So you were turnover one every three months less than that. Now, the listings are up to 30,000, and the sales are down to under 2,000 a month. Well, 30,000 is $15 billion worth of properties, and you are <clears throat> very likely, you can get real discontinuities in a market like that where all of a sudden people realize that the whole supply-demand situation has changed. So I, th I think we've had a bubble to some degree, and it's very hard to measure that degree till, till after it's all over. But uh, uh, I would be surprised if there aren't some significant downward adjustments from the peak, particularly in the higher end uh, properties. Yeah, and the man is right that the bubbles came in Manhattan and in certain places in California. In Omaha, housing prices are quite reasonable. So it's, it's, the country is not all the same at all. We just got an estimate of the uh, tenants at 24,000, which was about what it looked like from the tickets we had gotten. But, uh, I thank you all for coming on that. Uh, even better, the Furniture Mart, which had sales in 1997 of five and a fraction million, 2003 sales of 17 million, sales last year of 27 million, uh, is up so far two and a half million with the best yet to come. So we're, I would, I would say we're likely to do over 30 million at the furniture mark. And that incidentally is about equal to a normal monthly volume for the stores. So you're doing your part. Thank you. <laughs> Number two.
but you can do more. <laughs> Good morning. My name is John Norwood from Des Moines, Iowa. I have a two-year rule for my closet. If I don't wear a particular pair of pants or a shirt within two years, I give it away to Goodwill so that someone else can put it to better use. With 40 billion cash, I'm wondering whether Berkshire Hathaway should have a similar closet rule for deployment of surplus shareholder cash. It won't, go to, what, it won't go to Goodwill, I promise you that. <laughs> Thank you. And what, wouldn't it be better if you had a, a smaller budget and fewer gifts you, needed to, you and Charlie needed to shop for? Wouldn't you have more time for the beach and a better chance of hitting some home runs? Yeah, I don't think we'll hit any home runs uh, under any circumstances. But the you might consider a normal level of cash at Berkshire as being about $10 billion. Uh, although we, you know, there could be circumstances where we'd go below that. But because of the, the catastrophe insurance business we're in and all that, we, we do not, you know, we do not scrape the bottom of the barrel. But, but we don't need anything like uh, $40 billion. I think you'll see in the... 10Q uh, that we have, I think it was about 37 billion at the end of at the end of uh, March. Double check that, and I'm not counting the cash in the finance business. Yeah, 37 something, and uh, we're spending four billion on on Iscar. We've spent we're spending some money on some other things as well, but. We would be happier, much happier, uh, if we had $10 billion of cash and all the balance and things that we liked very much. And we work toward that end at all times. But there is nothing even about the way businesses come to us. We've got one idea at present, low probability. But that would take, uh, could take as much as $15 billion or close to $15 billion of cash. And whether it comes to fruition or not, who knows? But we do work on them. And what we care more, we don't like having excess cash around. We like even less doing dumb deals because we do them forever. I mean, if we make a dumb deal, uh, it just sits there. We, we don't resell it three months later by having an IPO of it or something of the sort. So you're right. You're right to say that, that we should be very uncomfortable about the fact that we've got the cash, but we it's also important that we not be so uncomfortable that we go out and do something just to be doing something. I would, I would say it's likely, but far from certain, that three years from now we have uh, signif significantly less cash, uh, and I hope significantly more earning power. But the goal of that cash is to be translated into permanent earning power over time. Like I say, with a four billion that we've just committed on this car, you know, we, we love having that $4 billion employed there instead of sitting around in, in, in short-term securities. And that's our job. Charlie and I don't do anything else uh, except appear in movies and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, but the, uh, uh, you know, you're right to keep, keep jabbing us on that because, uh, but we jab ourselves. You know, we, ne neither one of us is, basically likes 
cash. We always want to have adequate cash, and we always will have adequate cash. And we are the biggest player in the world in cat insurance. Uh, and people come to us because they know we're going to run a place that's very strong financially. But it doesn't have to be as liquid as we are as we are now. Uh, we spent five billion. Well, we didn't spend that much. At the Berkshire level, uh, we spent about three and a half billion on Pacific Corp. Now, we contracted for it a year earlier, but uh, we will get more chances, I think, in that field, but you never can tell when they'll come. Um, so come back next year, and I hope we have less cash. Yep. Oh, really? Oh, so, okay, well, we'll go to 13 now. Okay, Charlie, would you like to add anything on that? And then we'll... well, yeah, I think you you may get some per perspective on what bothers you. If you go back to the annual report of Berkshire 10 years ago and then compare that report with the last one, despite the great difficulties of deploying cash, we managed to put an awful lot of wonderful stuff into Berkshire in the last 10 years. So we aren't altogether gloomy about that process continuing. I, ne I neglected to go to the uh, adjacent room, which has a number of people in it as well. So I'm going to go to number 13 now, which will come from the ballroom. Uh, this is Phil McCall from Connecticut. I wonder, it's been some time since you've commented on Coca-Cola. And now that you're off the board, I wonder if you feel free to comment on it. Yeah, well, I, I won't make particularly different comments from, than from when I was on the board, but Coca-Cola... It's a fabulous company. Um, Coca-Cola will sell over 21 billion cases of, of uh, various products, more Coke than anything else, around the world this year. And it goes up every year. It's interesting. The stock in, what, 1997 or 98, whenever it was, sold over $80 a share when the earnings were, I don't remember what, $1.50 a share or something like that. And the earnings then were not as of good quality as the earnings are now when, you know, they were 217 or something like that. And every year, the, you know, they, have, they, they account for a little greater share of the liquids consumed by people in the world. Uh, they make fabulous returns on invested capital. You know, it's a business that has, exclude the bottling part of it, it has five or six billion of of tangible assets and and makes a similar amount. So there are not lots of big businesses in the world that earn 100% pre-tax on tangible assets. And um, it, it'll be a great business, and it's been a great business. The stock got to what, in retrospect, clearly was a ridiculous level, but you can't hold the present management, Neville Isidel, responsible for that. And he, you know, if the company sells 4 or 5% more, uh, units this year than last year, and the population of the world goes up 2%. It just means that more people are putting that particular uh, source of liquid down their throats than the year before, and that's been going on ever since 1886. So it strikes us as a, as a really wonderful business that sold at a very silly price uh, some years back, and, and uh, you can definitely fault me for not 
selling the stock. I always thought it was a wonderful business, but clearly at 50 times earnings, <clears throat> it was a silly price on the stock. <clears throat> so we, we like it. We'll own it 10 years from now, <clears throat> in my view. Charlie? No more. <clears throat> Peanut brittle gets caught occasionally, but it's worth it. It's worth it, definitely. <laughs> what? Oh, you want some, huh? Get your own box next time. <laughs> now, do you want us to go to 14 or not? Yes? Yes. Okay, number 14. My name is John Goss from Key West. Have insurance rates hardened as much as you anticipated? And have you seen a significant flight to quality in the last few years? Yeah, I think you're probably acting, asking more about reinsurance rates. The um, Actually, in auto insurance, you can figure it out. Our policies are up more than our premium volume. So the average premium in auto insurance, which after all is close to 40% of the, the whole market for insurance, the average premium in auto insurance is actually down a little bit. Um, but in, in reinsurance, in which we <clears throat> are a big player, you will, there's great variances. If you take insurance for marine risks in the Gulf Coast, drilling rigs and offshore platforms, that sort of thing, those, those prices are up very dramatically, but they should be. I think in the last couple of years, there's been like two and a half billion of premium in the Gulf Coast and 15 billion of losses. So if you paid out 15 billion and took in two and a half billion, the more astute of you would figure that you needed a little more money for that particular risk. Um, we have been historically, at least in recent years, the largest writer of catastrophe, mega catastrophe insurance in the world. And I think we will be this year. In fact, I'm almost sure we will be this year. Uh, our mix has changed some. Prices are up a lot. But what we don't know is whether exposures are up even more. Um, we don't know whether the experience of the last two years, we'll say, in the, uh, with hurricanes in this hemisphere is more to be relied upon than the experience of the last hundred years. You can take the hundred year experience and it tells you one thing, and you can take the last couple years and it tells you something else. And which is more meaningful? We don't know the answer to that. We do know that it's be kind of silly to assume that the hundred year experience is, is the relevant uh, criteria when conditions, we know certain atmospheric conditions have changed. We know water temperatures changed. But we don't know all the we do not know all of the variables that enter into the propensity of hurricanes to occur and the degree to uh, how intense they may be if they do incur. We we don't know the answer to that. We don't think anybody else knows the answer to it either. So we are getting more money for hurricane insurance. We're getting appreciably more money. If the last two years are the relevant years, we're not getting enough. If the last hundred years are the relevant years, we're getting plenty. And we will know more as time unfolds. The really scary possibility is that variables are changing in some way so that the change is continuous. And that what we've seen the last two years is not a worst case example at all. And of course you get into chaos type theory with some of these variables where 
the outcome is not, not a linear relationship to the input. And, and you, know, you can dream up some pretty scary scenarios on this. I don't know whether they're true, and, and, and nobody uh, knows. We are willing to write uh, certain areas, certain coverages, um, because we believe the prices are adequate and we can sustain the losses. We're, we are willing to lose uh, many billions of dollars in a given catastrophe if we think we've been um, paid appropriately for it. But it is not like figuring out uh, the odds on flipping coins or rolling dice or something like that. You, you are dealing with changing variables and you ha the worst thing you could have would be a 100-year history book uh, in making those judgments. Um, the third quarter, we will have a lot of exposure for wind. We don't have as much exposure now. Well, we may. We, uh, I'd say we're, we're getting there, but we don't have as much, certainly as much as we had a couple of years ago. Uh, prices, questions about prices hardening. The prices are getting uh, are hardening in that particular area. And if they get to what the, where we really feel they're appropriate, you know, we, we might take on a fair, we will take on a fair amount more risk. Uh, if they don't get there, even though they're higher than last year, we won't write, you know, we're not interested in writing it because it, it's a dangerous business. And uh, um, we don't believe in modelers at all. I read all this stuff about modeling. I wrote about that a few years ago. It's silly. You know, the modelers don't know a thing, in, in my view, about what, what, what's going to happen. Uh, and we get paid for making guesses on it. If over a lifetime the guesses are, are, are uh, decent, we will know that, you know, we were doing the right thing. But if, the, if this year goes by and nothing happens, we still don't know whether we were right on the prices. Because if you get a 25% rate for something and it doesn't happen in a year, that does not mean that a 20, you didn't need 40% or 50%. It just means that if you do it enough times, you will find out whether overall your judgments are any good. It's still a business we like. We bring a lot to the party. Everybody knows we can pay. You got into the question of creditworthiness. If there is some super, super catastrophe, and I regard sort of the outer limits of that being a $250 billion insured loss. For reference, Katrina was a, presently estimated was about a $60 billion loss. So if something comes along, it's four times Katrina, which could happen. You know, we can pay and we can comfortably pay. We would probably have about 4% of that, maybe 10 billion. A very large percent of the industry would be, would be in very, very serious trouble. So. We can play bigger than others, and we can survive better than others if something bad comes along. And uh, uh, we will see over a five or ten year period how we do. You can't judge it by any one year. Charlie? The record of the past, if you average it out, has been quite respectable. And uh, why shouldn't we use our capital strength to get in the volatile stuff that makes other people frightened. Do we go back to number, to here? One more, number 15. Uh, hello. Yep. I'm Mark Rabinov from Melbourne, Australia. I had a 
two-part question on the 2005 annual report. Firstly, NetJets is a substantial part of our operations. Unfortunately, its value is obscured by losses in recent years, and I can't estimate its value from the report. I was hoping you might be able to help me on that. The second thing, how do I value the Berkshire Hathaway Reinsurance Group in light of the deferred charges on retroactive policies? Thank you. The uh, second question, uh, uh, about the we have a, an item that's about $2 billion on the asset side. I think I'm addressing the question of deferred charges on retroactive policies. That reflects the fact that those retroactive policies where we insure, we reinsure in effect, the losses somebody has already incurred, although they may not know how much they've incurred. Um, and we have limits on these, but we, we set up a factor that essentially recognizes the fact that we will have that money for a considerable period of time. We set up an asset and that gets amortized over the length of time we have that asset. That, that number, which I think has gotten as high as $3 billion over the years, since we haven't done any of those, any big contracts recently, is down around $2 billion. There's nothing, there's nothing magic about that. It means that we're going to amortize that $2 billion over the lifetime of the use of the funds, and we think we'll make money net during that time. But we missed guests on one a couple of years ago and took a $100 million charge, for example, in the first quarter of, I think it was the year before last. Um, the other question was about NetJets, wasn't it, Charlie? And, but yeah. what, uh, I, didn't, I didn't get it at all. Uh, I, lo I love the Australian accent of our gecko, but I, I didn't pick up the exact nuances of what you asked. But my guess is you asked about, about, the, about the earnings and operation of NetJets. And NetJets has grown rapidly, and so far our expenses have grown faster than our revenue. We have, we've got the top service in the world. Uh, we've got really the only worldwide service. We have a very strong position, particularly in larger airplanes. But I'd have to tell you that, that I did not anticipate. I, I, I thought we would have economies of scale to some degree. And, and so far, you could almost argue that we've had diseconomies of scale. And our expenses, particularly last year, uh, you know, basically got out of hand. And there are various reasons I could give you for that. All I can tell you is it's being addressed. Rich Santulli, who runs that operation, you could not have a better operator. He loves NetJets. He works at it 16 hours a day. He is, he could, there's nobody in the world I would have run that except for Rich. I think it's an important service. It's tough to make money with airplanes. They're capital intensive. We've had fuel do what it has, although that's a pass-through to people, but it still affects the business. And I would, I had expected we would be uh, profitable last year, and as I put in the annual report, I was dead wrong. I think we will be profitable before long, but, but you should take my prediction there with probably with a certain amount of skepticism until it actually happens, because I, like I say, I've been wrong. We've, we've got a good business uh, in that almost anybody looking for a large plane on a fractional jet program comes to us. Uh, we are able to get full price for our service, but 
there were a variety of inefficiencies last year, which added up to a lot of dollars. And, uh, you know, you're entitled to hold me accountable uh, for the fact that we paid a lot of money for the business uh, many years ago, and we haven't earned any money since. And uh, we've got a much bigger business now, probably five times or so the size of the business we bought. Uh, maybe some solace. I looked at Raytheon's figures the other day. They lost a lot of money, and they have the they have the second largest operation in it. But they sell their they sell airplanes too, so they may not feel it the way I do. Uh, but if I had to bet one way or the other, I would I would I would bet we will be making money before long. But I've lost that bet in the past, Charlie. Yeah, the, the product integrity is so extreme between flight safety, safety and net jets. The pilots are subjected to real oxygen withdrawal in the course of the safety training, so they will recognize the subtle sensation that you get. And not everybody does that. It's an expensive, difficult thing to do. In place after place after place, that system is very obsessive about product integrity. And it's my guess that that obsession in due course will be uh, rewarded. Okay, we'll go to number three. Dear Warren and Charlie, I'm Oliver Krautschert from Frankfurt in Germany. Here's a question to the Silver King. Some commodity investors give you as a reference as one of the largest owner of physical silver. Could you please clarify what kind of exposure you or Berkshire currently have in silver? And further, could you please help us to understand how you determine the value of a non-interest bearing precious metal? Do you have any silver on you, Charlie? <laughs> we, we, had a, we had a lot of silver at one time, but we don't have it now. The, uh, the original decision, my decision, was that the production of silver and the reclamation of silver, I don't remember the numbers exactly now, but they were running perhaps 100 million ounces or thereabouts less uh, uh, than the consumption. And now, a lot of consumption has gone down in photography, but that's where the reclamation was, too, so that those tended more to balance each other out. Uh, I haven't looked at the figures for the last year or so, but, but silver was out of balance. Now, on the other hand, there were enormous quantities of silver above ground, and there were huge quantities of silver that could, could possibly be removed from other uses, perhaps, uh, you know, in, in jewelry and all kinds of things that could conceivably add to supply as they did in the early 1980s when the Hunt Brothers thing took place. But overall, silver was being produced and reclaimed at a, uh, at a lesser rate than it was being consumed. And added to that was the fact that there are relatively few pure silver mines. Silver, mine, silver is largely produced as a byproduct of, of uh, copper and lead and zinc. And, so that it was not easy to bring on added production. So all of that added up to the fact that, that I thought that silver would get tight at some point. And as I said, I was, very, I was early in that conclusion and I was early in selling. Uh, so we have no silver now and we did not make much money on it. 
and you're right that it it doesn't it doesn't earn anything. Uh, uh, so you sit with it. It's not like it's not like sitting with a stock where, in most cases, uh, earnings are piling up for you. You you have to hope that a you have to hope that a commodity moves in price because it is not producing anything as it sits there looking at you, and that's one of the drawbacks of commodities. Charlie. We, we didn't get where we are by owning non-interest-bearing commodities. Uh, I don't think it's a big issue around here. We actually owned oil at one time, too, didn't we? But we didn't make much money out of it. We made a little money. No, you made quite a bit out of oil. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it's a good habit to trumpet your failures and be quiet about your successes. Yeah. Well, we have more to trumpet than we have to be quiet about. <laughs> How about number four? Good morning. My name is Bill Gunn. I've traveled from the United Kingdom and I would like to ask if you think it's a good investment strategy to invest in regions of high resources per capita. Uh, in particular, I should like to ask if you think that the analysis per capita should lead to higher growth for businesses in that region plus the bonus of a relative exchange rate growth. Thank you. I'm not sure about the per capita part, Charlie. Uh, well, my understanding is he was talking about investing in a region with high resources per capita. Mm. I think he means natural resources. Yeah, you think in places like Canada or something of the sort where the... Um, I can clarify... Um, Yes, high natural resources, but, good, but also good infrastructure. Thank you. And, and whether there'd be relative currency strength in those as well? No, whether it's a good area for us to be operating in. Well, that, that would be a little, a little macro for us. Uh, we, really, we really just zero in on, you know, whether people will keep eating candy and... and uh, whether we can charge a little more for it next year. Uh, the, we don't play big trends. You know, we, we don't think about de demographic trends or anything of the sort. That, uh, we think about our own ages getting older. But, uh, but other uh, big trends, they just don't mean that much. There's, there's too much money to be made from year to year to think about things that take decades to manifest themselves. So I can't recall of a... I can't recall of a, a decision we've ever made on a purchase of a business or a stock uh, or a junk bond or a currency or anything else based on uh, on a macro. Or Not only that, we've recently failed to profit much from one of the biggest commodity booms in history. Yeah. And we'll probably continue to fail in the same way. But we'll search for new ways to fail. I mean, we're not yeah. trying to limit us. <laughs> It's probably true, incidentally, in a country like Canada, where you've got probably millions of barrels of oil, of, uh, of millions of barrels a day of oil uh, production coming on, and where there's you know relatively few people, uh, and where there's already a a, a surplus, running, they're running a significant current account surplus. That you know that it's not strange that their currency should be strong relative to a country like ours where we're running a huge current account deficit and we don't have that same 
natural, the gain in, in natural exports coming on that they do. But that, there's so many more important factors that are going to hit us immediately that that's, that's what we really think about day to day. Number five. Good morning. My name is Glenn Strong. I'm from Canton, Ohio. I'm an optimistic person, and I'm sure it would be more enjoyable to discuss the Chicago Cubs' march to the World Series. You are optimistic. <laughs> but everybody has a bad century now and then, as somebody said about the Cubs. <laughs> However, I have an information deficit on a certain topic that I hope you can fix. Please gaze into your crystal ball. As an investor, I want to know how to address the risk of nuclear terrorism in the United States. Consider a scenario where terrorists have detonated a nuclear device in a major U.S. city. I know there would be a terrible cost in human lives. Gentlemen, what would happen to our economy? How would it respond? How resilient would it be? Thank you. Well, it would certainly depend on the extent of it, but if you're asking how to profit from that, I, there's probably some dealer that will sell you mortality derivatives, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's what we, we, we would be thinking about that. No, I, I, I agree with you, Norm. I, I couldn't agree with you more about that being the ultimate problem of mankind, not necessarily a terrorist type usage, but a, a state-sponsored usage of, of weapons of mass destruction. And it will happen someday. The extent to which it will happen, where it will happen, who knows. But, but we have always had evil people. We've always had people who wish evil on others. And, you know, thousands of years ago, if you were psychotic or a religious fanatic or a malcontent, and you wished evil on your neighbor, you picked up a rock and threw it at him, and that was about the damage you could do. But we went on to bows and arrows and cannons and a few things. But since 1945, it's the, the potential for inflicting enormous harm on incredible numbers of people has increased, you know, at a geometric pace. So it is, it is the problem of, of mankind. It may happen here, it may happen someplace else. People say it's a, sometimes they say, well, you know, if we solve poverty, we'd solve this. Well, I would just remind you that, that nuclear weapons have only been used twice and those were by the richest country in the, in the world, the United States in 1945. So people will justify their use under some circumstances if they feel threatened. They will justify them for religious reasons. They will do all kinds of crazy things. And the, what holds it in check is the degree to which the lack of knowledge of how to do it is, 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 is controlled and the degree to which the materials are controlled and which the deliverability is, 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 is circumscribed. And we're losing ground on all of those fronts. The knowledge is more widespread. You know, the possibility of getting your hands on materials, you know, the Dr. Khans of the world and so on. Has increased, and it, it will be—it's a, <clears throat> a real problem. But we won't be thinking about uh, what Berkshire did that day in the, in the stock market. And uh, I don't know—I um, don't—I don't know how money attacks that. I mean, I've always saw that as the top priority. I think 
should be the top priority for a philanthropy in my particular case, but it's a diff it's a very difficult it's a it's a worst case problem. You know, you have six billion people in the world, and have a certain percentage of them who are one way or another a little crazy, or very crazy, and some of whom and that craziness would manifest itself by by trying to do great harm to a lot of people. And it's uh, only one of them has to succeed. I don't know how many we've intercepted over the years. I'm sure we've intercepted a lot of in incipient ones, but but it, it is a worst case problem and, and one will succeed at some point. And it may be state sponsored, it may be terrorist. But, you know, Berkshire is better set to survive than anybody else, but it won't make much difference. Charlie? Well, I think that the chances we'll have another 60 or 70 years with no nuclear devices used on purpose is pretty close to zero. So I think you're right to worry about it, but I don't myself think there's much that any of us can do about it except to be as sensible as we can and take the consequences as they come. The only thing you can do about it, but you only have one vote, is to elect leaders who are terribly conscious of the product and uh, problem and uh, who uh, devote a significant you know, part of their thought and energy into minimizing it. You, you can't eliminate it. You know, the genie is out of the bottle. And, and uh, uh, you would like to have the leading, the leaders of the major countries of the world regarding it as their primary as a primary focus actually in the in the 2004 campaign I think that that both candidates said it was the major problem of of our time but but um, you know they, they probably suffer from the same feeling that I do that it's very hard to address number six hello mr. Buffett mr. Munger my name is William Schooler and I'm a shareholder visiting from Spicewood, Texas. I would like to thank you both for being so generous to the public with your ideas. Last year, I read Poor Charlie's Almanac and came across a passage on share repurchases. It reads, quote, when Berkshire has gotten cheap, we found other, even cheaper stocks to buy. I'd always prefer this. It's no fun to have the company so lacking in repute that we can make money for some shareholders by buying out others, end quote. Last year, you bought stock in some great businesses trading at fair prices, such as Walmart and Budweiser, but did not attempt to buy our own shares. Would shareholders be correct to infer from this decision that you both felt Walmart and Budweiser were trading at a deeper discount to their intrinsic values than Berkshire was? And would it be possible to buy as much Berkshire in the open market as you did Walmart without running up the share price? Most of the time we would not be able to buy an amount that would be material in terms of of the uh, increasing the value of the remaining Berkshire shares but that doesn't mean it would never happen but it 
if you look at the trading volume on on Berkshire and Mark, you might put that up if, if we can in a second. Uh, we probably have less opportunity than most companies if our stock is selling, should be selling below intrinsic value to have anything meaningful happen. We would also have, if we regarded some other company as worth X, a good business, and we could buy it at 90% at, at of X, we might be doing that now, whereas we wouldn't have done it many years ago. But we might, re, we might require a somewhat greater margin in terms of buying Berkshire shares simply because our, our view on that might be less, we, we probably have more knowledge on it, but we might be less objective than on some other things. We think that, that when we buy, if we were to buy in Berkshire shares, and if you remember four or five years ago, I announced we would if the price stayed the same, that the case ought to really be compelling. Now, if it's compelling, we ought to do it. Uh, it was compelling at that time. But simply the act of writing about it, you know, it's a little bit of the Heisenberg principle, the act of writing about it, uh, in effect eliminated the opportunity to do it, which is fine, because we do not, we are not looking to make money off of buying from shareholders at a depressed price. On the other hand, if the price is sufficiently depressed, we will announce again that we intend to do it, and then we'll see whether we actually get a chance to do it. Charlie? Yeah, the whole climate in the country is different now. It used to be that almost every company that bought in shares was buying the man at an obvious bargain price. Now I think a lot of share buying is designed to sort of prop the stock price. In other words, it's not bargain seeking, it's it's more like Sam Insel. Yeah, forty years ago, thirty thirty years ago, it was very it was a very fertile field uh, for making money to look at companies that were aggressively buying in their shares. The most extreme case probably you mean Teledyne. Uh, but those people were buying overwhelmingly. Gordon Wallace was doing it at, at, at the companies he controlled. Those, those people were motivated simply by the fact they wanted to buy the stock below what it was really worth, and significantly below. And you could make money with that group. Uh, and we did a little of that at the time. I would say in recent years, uh, that, that motivation has been swamped by people who either think it's fashionable to buy in shares or by people who really like the idea of trying to prop their stock up somewhat. And the, the SEC has certain rules in terms of your, the way you conduct your repurchases to prevent daily sort of propping up. But I think, I think there's a lot of motivation that our stock has got to be cheaper than other people's stock and we've got a wonderful company and so we're just going to buy the stock come hell or high water, and uh, that is not the way we would go about repurchasing shares. We've got what we had up there, I think, uh, some figures that showed the turnover of Berkshire shares uh, compared in a year, compared with a few others I picked out. I think Berkshire has the lowest turnover by some margin of any major company in the, in the, in the United States. Uh, and I put Walmart up there because the, Wal the, the, the Walton family owns about the same, in fact, they own more of, 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 uh, of Walmart than, than I do of Berkshire. So this is not a function of simply the fact that we've got concentrated holdings uh, with the Buffett family. This is a reflection of the fact that we've got a really unusual shareholder body 
in that they think of themselves as owners and not of people who are moving around with little pieces of paper every every week or month. We we have the most, in my view, we have the most what I would call honest to God ownership uh, attitude among our 400,000 or so shareholders of any company, of any big traded company in the United States. We people people buy Berkshire to own it and hold it. And uh, that's reflected in our turnover. That does mean if for some reason the stock gets cheap, real cheap, that we will not be able to buy a lot of stock in. But we, we don't want, we are not, we're not looking to buy out our partners at a discount. If it sells there and we tell them we're going to buy it, we'll buy it. But, but that's not, that's not a way that we're trying to make money. Charlie, any more? No, I've said my piece. Number seven. Good morning. My name is David Saber, shareholder from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Looking for some advice uh, you might give the young professionals here. Um, I could be classified as one of those helpers you describe in your annual report. In fact, most of my friends are helpers, and some could be classified as super helpers. Most would love to step out and uh, explore some of their more innovative ideas, innovative business models, strategies, and things of that nature. But the risk of giving up a significant salary, health insurance, flights, all the ridiculous corporate perks that some of us young professionals earn. What advice would you have in us into pursuing those dreams? Charlie, what do you think? <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot more helpers in the economy than there used to be. And the ones that come here tend to be the very best of the helper class. So I don't think you should judge the helper class by those you meet here. We get the best of them. And uh, as to what the young helpers ought to do so that they'll eventually be like Warren Buffett, I would say the best thing you can do is reduce your expectations. I think I've heard that before. <laughs> well, it is, you know, as I wrote about, and I'm trying to tweak the system a little bit, but the, it is an interesting business in that the, the activities of the professionals are self-neutralizing. And if you're going to, if your wife is going to have a baby, you're going to be better off if you call an obstetrician probably than if you do it yourself. You know, and if, you're the, if your plumbing pipes are clogged or something, you're probably better off calling a plumber. Uh, most professions have value added to them above what the layman can accomplish themselves. In aggregate, the investment profession does not do that. So you have a huge group of people making, I, I put the estimate as $140 billion a year, that in aggregate are and can only accomplish what somebody can do, you know, in 10 minutes a year uh, uh, by themselves. And it's hard to think of another business like that, Charlie. I can't think of any. No. Um, but it's become a bigger and bigger business. And uh, as I've pointed out in the report, the main thing uh, that's been learned is that if the more you charge, uh, 
at least temporarily, the more money you bring in. Uh, that people have this idea that price equals value. Uh, it's useful to get into a business like that. Sometimes I'm, if I'm talking to the people at a business school, you know, I ask them what the what a great to name me a great business. And of course, one of the great businesses is a business school because basically, the more you charge, the more you're prestigious to some extent. And, and people think that a business school that charges fifty thousand a year of tuition is going to be better than one charges ten thousand a year of tuition. So uh, there's some of that that well, there's a lot of it that's gotten into the investment field recently, and you now have large, uh, certain large portions of investment management that are charging fees that, in aggregate cannot work out for investors. Now, obviously some do, you know, but but uh, you cannot be paying people 2% and 20% where they get it in the good years and they fold their partnerships and start another one if, if they have a bad year and that sort of thing. You, you can't have that coming out of a an economy that's only going to produce, we'll say, you know, 7% or something like that a year for investors and have people net better off. It isn't going to work. And then the question that you will have is, how do I pick out the few exceptions? And everyone that calls upon you to sell you this will tell you that they are an exception. And uh, I am willing to bet uh, a significant sum of money, we'll put it up, uh, to anybody who wants to name 10 partnerships that are $500 million or more of management and, and pit those after fees against the S&P over a 10-year period. And, uh, uh, you know, it gets away from the survivorship bias and all that kind of thing. But we, and it isn't going to happen. But a few will, a few will do well. They're bound to do well. And, uh, you know, I just, and, I, and actually, I think I do know how to pick a few that will do well. I mean, I, I did it in the past when I wound up my own partnership in 19, 1969. I told people to go to either Bill Ruane or Sandy Gottesman. And that would have been a very good uh, decision, which, whichever place they went. So if you know enough about the person, know enough how they've done it in the past, know enough about their personality and honesty and a whole bunch of things, I think that occasionally you can make a very intelligent choice in picking an investment manager. But I don't think you can do it if you're sitting running a pension fund in some state and you have... 50 people calling on you, you're going to you're going to go with the ones that are the best salespeople and not the ones that are the best investors. Charlie? Yeah, on that state pension fund investment subject, I think it ought to be a crime to entertain in any way a state pension fund official, and I think it ought to be a crime if you are a state pension fund official to accept the entertainment. It's not a pretty scene, a lot of investment management in America now. And human nature being what it is and the amounts of money being what they are, I don't think much is going to be improved. Well, we wanted to leave you in a good mood for lunch. So <laughs> we will break now and we'll come back in about 45 minutes or so. and. Uh, uh, those of you who are in the other rooms, by then the crowd tends for some unexplainable reason. And you can all join us here in the, in the main room, and we'll be back in about 45 minutes. Thank you.